everyone. This is Jules, your host of the All Things Eisen podcast. Welcome to this week's episode in which I share a conversation that I had with Gisli Paulson in his office at the University of Iceland. He recently retired, but he served as a professor at the university and as a director of the Institute of Anthropology at the university as well. He has written several books, including The Man Who Stole Himself, the story about Hans Jonathan, or in English, Hans Jonathan, who was the first black citizen of Iceland back in the 1800s. To get a good overview of that story, you could check out the video that I recently published about Hans on my YouTube channel. You can find that video in the show notes of this episode on my website from foreigntofamiliar.com. During our chat, we talked about many different topics. It was fascinating to hear about what made him interested in pursuing anthropology in the first place, what it was like growing up in the Westman Islands, which is a group of islands off the coast of the mainland of Iceland, why he decided to write about Hans Jonathan, how he chooses what to research and to write about, the issue of race, the iconic Icelandic Arctic explorer Vilhjalmur Stefansson, and how Icelandic society is evolving. I thoroughly enjoyed this interview, and I hope you do as well. And just as a reminder, you can keep up to date with the new podcast episodes, videos, and other fascinating information I'm sharing by signing up to my free newsletter. A link to that is in the show notes of this episode. All right, now let's just jump into the interview. Geesley. Thank you for joining me to chat today about a really fascinating topic that I'm, I'm quite excited about. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. And we'll just start out with getting to know you a little bit. I'm very curious because you were born in the uh, Westman Islands and, you know, it's a very interesting isolated part of Iceland, even though Iceland is kind of isolated in general. But what was it like growing up on those islands? Yeah, I, I was born in 1949. It was uh, and, and remains uh, a, a small town, 4,000 inhabitants probably when I was born, or slightly less, it's, it's uh, 4,000 now, right. and uh, mainly a fishing town, a thriving fisheries. It's uh, 10 kilometers to the mainland, right. and, and the communication were were slow and and unreliable so mm-hmm. it was a fairly isolated community at the age of six i i went to the mainland during the summer right. and i continued the next five summers as well and i stayed with uh, relatives on a farm and and i would uh, ride horses and and drive tractors and <laughs> and and the rest of it and and i learned a lot of things and in the winter, I was uh, back home in, in the Westman Isles. Primary school and secondary grammar school. And then at the age of 15, I, I went to a kind of college on the mainland okay. and stayed there in Lögarvatn, close to Geysir, yeah. place many people know. And I was there for four, four winters and then um, university in Reykjavik and mm. then Manchester. And yeah, okay. So was it somewhat strange going from the Westman Islands to the mainland, right? Is it is there a very distinct feeling of difference between like the communities or um, how life is? I mean, I would imagine it's a bit slower, maybe mm-hmm. you in, on you know, in the Westman Islands, but then when you come onto the mainland, especially into Reykjavik, right? There's a lot different type of buzz going around and feeling. Yeah, coming to the mainland or, or the farm was uh, was quite an experience. The pace of life was uh, slower. I mean, it's a small agricultural community yeah. and, and everything was new to me. I mean, domestic stock and, and mm. uh, farming. And But I stayed with uh, rel- close relatives, which was uh, smooth and nice. Um, coming to Reykjavik then uh, to live in, in 69, I'd been there, of course, a few times before, but uh, it was a new experience again, entering this university. The division between the countryside and, and the city uh, has always been strong. 
and I mean political battles for power and and there's a class element mm -hmm. I mean the elite was based here in, in the capital and the rural communities uh, had to fight a certain battle in terms of language and rhetoric and culture and uh, coming here I sensed that mm -hmm. tension and coming from the sort of margin I think that pushed me into social science to, yeah. to yeah. reflect on on class differences and inequality and cultural differences and yeah. eventually into anthropology. Right. Yeah, that was actually my next question. It's like, what made you interested in that? So it kind of makes mm. sense just getting a backstory about you to understand, were people ever biased toward you if they learned that you were from the Westman Islands when you were in, in Reykjavik? Any of that type of outward, you know, or was it just kind of a, maybe a little bit under the rug in a way? Yeah, it's more under the rug. It, it wasn't deliberate, and but coming to campus and and meeting uh, people from the uh, classmates from the elite schools in mm. town, I could sense I wasn't in the center, but there was no stigma. Or, okay. But uh, you, you could feel it. I mean, the classification of good and bad language, for instance. Is it still like that now? Uh, it's it's far more complex now. And okay. And we have class differences and, and, and the language flora or the dialects have become, have become more complex, kind of less attached to regional differences. Okay. But sometimes you, you see the, the inequality. Okay. And did you, when you went to college, initially start, we said, with sociology? Um, I started broadly with social science. Social science. Which okay. was practically new on campus. Okay. And, and my cohort, uh, in fact, helped to establish uh, mm. social science. It was an old-fashioned campus with law, medicine, theology, almost nothing else. Right. And, and, and this was in the late 60s, in the 68 movement, okay. student revolution and Vietnam and the rest of it. We were passionate about uh, putting social science on the agenda and we managed. Nice to um, slowly add courses and, and it was not a, a college on the standard of Berkeley or Stanford yeah. <laughs> or New York, but it worked yeah. and I managed to get into graduate school in, in England, and nice. etc. So in a way you were creating your own curriculum. Yeah. Okay. And there are schools like that now, actually, where that's like you pay a lot of money <laughs> to go to a school to do that. Whereas like back in the day, in your time, it was at least like a necessity, right? This, yes. There was no other way for this to happen. So yeah. that's interesting. Okay. And you ended up going to Manchester mm -hmm. to study anthropology. Yeah. 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 And what was By that? then I had decided when I wrote my BA dissertation, interestingly, on the concept of race mm. and racism. Somehow, and uh, it just occurred to me recently, reflecting on why I wrote the book about mm -hmm. the man who stole himself. And, but I did my BA in anthropology and then continued in Manchester for an MA and later a PhD. Okay. Great. And when you were at some point, well, I, I guess I should back up. When did you learn about the story of Hans Jonathan? It was about 10 years ago. And I was in in Copenhagen on a leave, a research leave, and I had borrowed or rented a flat belonging to the Icelandic state okay. in the center or centrally in Copenhagen. And, uh, and the project I was working on had nothing to do with uh, race or slavery or Hans Jonathan. But one evening I was watching TV and I saw a documentary on Danish slavery. And, and it turns out there was a series done by a Danish journalist uh, Alex Frank Larsen okay. and uh, what I saw was simply one part of five and uh, and this part happened to uh, include interviews with the descendant of a guy named Hans Jonathan, people who lived practically next door in the Westman Isles. Wow okay. And, uh, and I was puzzled and, and I jotted down some names and I knew some of these people sort of, <laughs> yeah. uh, personally. And right. But had no idea their connection, obviously. No, not. Had no, no idea they were sort of descendants of West African slaves. Or, yeah. And I knew nothing about the saga or the name or anything. But it struck me immediately. And I sort of uh, had a hunch. This is something I need to do yeah. as an anthropologist, having grown up in, in the Westman Isles. And when I returned to 
Reykjavik half the month in Copenhagen. Uh, I called some of these people and, and asked them to meet me and, and they were happy to share what they had and some documents about the famous legal case, etc. And mm. it was uh, a total surprise uh, seeing the documentary. And, right. and I wasn't going to, I, I didn't know what I would, would be doing with this. And, and I, I just continued to to talk to these people and, and scramble in the libraries for any documentation. As soon I came across the legal documents through one of the descendants, mm-hmm. and fortunately had them transcribed. It's, uh, they were written in 1801 and wow. two yeah. in, in, uh, in a, an old-fashioned script, Gothic okay. script, and, and uh, difficult to read. But I got them a transcription from uh, friends in Copenhagen, and once I had read the documents, I said, wow, mm-hmm. this is interesting stuff. Absolutely. And uh, it might make it possible to make a full-fledged uh, uh, biography of the person. Yeah. Okay. Were there any documents from, say, like his wife or children or anything like that? Or was it just these court documents that you're talking about and then accounts, I guess, over time. Like, how, how, how did you kind of uncover more information to tell this story? Um, some of the descendants of Hans Jonathan had papers. Okay. Uh, typically, records from the store where he worked okay. in East Iceland, in mm-hmm. Dupivor. But there are no documents, no other documents written by him, no letters mm. or anything. But he is mentioned in, I mean, Iceland was a Danish colony and, and the Danes had a pretty thorough bureaucratic machine and, and so censuses and, and Paris records and yeah. stuff like that is pretty thorough okay. and reliable. And I had assistants scanning the archives for everything possible about this guy in, in the records and, and slowly I would fill in and get a picture of, of the household and, and what he was doing, how people responded to him. And, yeah. and there was one excellent essay mm-hmm. about him by the father of Kauri Stevanson, the yep. director of Decogenetics. Mm-hmm. And, and that was illuminating because the author had uh, lived in the, in the village mm-hmm. of Dubuor mm-hmm. and knew the descendants, the great-great-grandchildren. So all of this helped tremendously, and then I visited colleagues in in uh, Denmark, in in America, in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. a Danish American uh, anthropologist uh, who had his own personal archive on Danish colonialism, and I went to uh, Saint Croix mm-hmm. and, and, and interviewed the major historian there working on on slavery issues, mm-hmm. George Tyson. Sven Holzer was the Danish-American anthropologist in Philadelphia, and okay. the two of them collaborated. Sven has passed away, but th- they produced interesting stuff, and, and we're happy to share yeah, great. what they knew. And so this took years. Yeah, it uh, sounds like it's yeah. a lot to uncover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was there anything unusual or surprising that came out of this story for you? I guess there was lots of stuff. It's mm-hmm. kind of faded into memory because I've written it down and, and given hundreds of talks on it, and etc. But one of the intriguing aspects of the saga is that there's no evidence of any stigma attached to Hans Jonathan's skin color mm-hmm. or background. And he was seen as uh, perhaps slightly different from, from others in the locality, but in any, any case, they were all different right. from each other. <laughs> yeah. And uh, some of them had ancestors from North Iceland or mm. the next valley or, or the western part, etc. And, and maybe Hans Jonathan was simply considered like them, but mm. with a slight difference yeah. uh, due to something unknown. Yeah. So, uh, I find that really fascinating. I mean, yeah. that was the part of the story that is, I, I think I talk about it in the video, that there yeah. is this part of, you know, a concept of racism, right? Yeah. And how this is something that we're... Um, taught and also pushed into to some degree yeah. is a societal pressure just because you feel like for, you have to find these differences in people in order to oppress them and yeah. i send it people already being oppressed by danish monarchy but mm-hmm. it's just nice to know that you know you can look in history and be like oh wow you see these yes. people haven't been <laughs> they haven't been uh, indoctrinated with this yeah. thinking and so they just they see him as a human being yeah 
who is there to also to contribute to society. Yeah. And, and here I grew up on Danish historians who I think clearly showed that before the sugar trade mm-hmm. and the slave trade, Danes had no idea of race. It came with the brutality of slavery. Yeah. Greed, basically, yeah. right? It's just that dehumanizing people in yeah. order to make tons of money. But I'm, I'm very grateful that you kind of have brought this to the light, just uh, not only because of, you know, I personally feel connected to it, but also I think it's just uncovering in history, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, that it wasn't like this, it, especially this, you know, exceptionalism, Nordic exceptionalism that has been mm-hmm. going around. Mm-hmm. Not, I, would, I don't know how much it is in Iceland, probably very little in compared to some, maybe some other Nordic countries, but still it exists, right? And it's a yeah. potential growing threat to inclusion of diversity mm-hmm. and just treating people fairly, right? So, yeah. yeah, and I think that the story of Hans Jonathan sort of speaks to that. And, and there was, a, as I discussed in the book, uh, the children and grandchildren of Hans Jonathan experienced stigma yeah. because it was the uh, nationalistic fervor and mm. Icelanders felt they had to prove they were authentic, they were more Norse or Aryan than anybody else. Mm-hmm white and blonde and blue-eyed, etc. And at that time, in in the late 19th century and early 20th, I think uh, some of the descendants felt obliged to silence their Mm. real origin. And and every hint about blackness was kept secret, yeah. So it's just like the descendants, even though they kept this these documents and pass it on. It was just mm. like under the table, right? Like, just don't tell anybody <laughs> about yes. it. Yeah, and some didn't like sharing it. When I started inquiring into this, I, I, I felt a sensitivity and and uh, some people wouldn't trust me. I mean, mm. uh, the issue of race could easily be screwed up, resulting in more stigma than, I mean, kind of thing you see in, in Europe. Yeah. Hungary, Norway, yeah. Denmark, etc. Yeah. Now, though, I mean, well, at least when Kauri did this um, like mapping of Hans Jonathan's genome, I'm just, that part was really fascinating to me when I talked to him and he was like, people were super proud. You know, so it's like the turn mm. of the, the tide, right? It went from being, it was okay for Hans Jonathan to be here mm. and except as an individual, then his descendants were stigmatized and had to silence their past or yeah. their, you know, ancestry and now it's you know taken on another turn where people are like i'm related yes, <laughs> like i've even yes. had people on, on facebook being like i'm related to him and yes. i was like so it's that's also really interesting too how much it changes yeah throughout the centuries yeah there are kinds of swings mm-hmm. the acceptance of the of the old man yeah <laughs> and then the suppression of evidence right. during the nationalist era and then kind of so what and now a celebration. Right. I hope my book has contributed to to the last phase. I mean, uh, this is his life as far as we know. Right. And uh, and we have every good reason to celebrate it. Exactly. Yeah. I think it has, and I think it will continue. And hopefully, when people uh, on a wider scale get a chance to learn about the story, mm-hmm. it it contributes on you know global scale of mm-hmm. how acceptance is something that obviously helps everybody in the end, right? Yeah. It doesn't need to be this division. I think it highlights the point that our senses are not programmed to classify color in a particular manner. Right. Yeah. And there are debates, in, in, no doubt, in cognitive science about the, our neurons and, and how we uh, operate with skin color. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's any evidence for an ingrained, spontaneous reaction to color. I mean, color whiteness or blackness or whatever mm-hmm. is, is culturally defined yeah. and has to do with power. Mm-hmm. True. Well, I'm just going to move on to one of your other books that intrigued mm-hmm. me, uh, which is Writing on Ice, the Ethnographic Notebooks of Wilhelmar Stefansson, who is an Arctic explorer and pioneering anthropologist. And that story, I haven't read the book, but I just kind of got the synopsis. And it's fascinating and heartbreaking um, mm-hmm. based on this kind of family that he had, uh, or secret family. <laughs> and so I was just wondering, regarding that story, mm-hmm. how did you uncover this story? Like, Because it, it, there seems to be some really sensitive parts to it, particularly around this secret family that he had. I began, for some reason, exploring the field diaries of this guy. 
William Stefansson. He was an, uh, an anthropologist and an explorer, mm-hmm. and he traveled widely in, in, uh, in the Arctic, from Alaska to Canada, from uh, 1907, mm-hmm. and uh, for years. And he spoke Inuit yeah. language, and he was considered the one of the experts on the Arctic before it was kind of widely opened right. to the West. One of his key books was The Friendly Arctic, and he, he, he was emphasizing that you have to live with the indigenous people and, and live as they do, right. and, and then you understand them, which was kind of new at the time, mm-hmm. because outside observers would rush in for a few days or weeks and, and, and write simplistic accounts without mm. the linguistic nuances, etc. And, of course, this is good anthropology. Stefansson's field diaries were stored in Dartmouth College mm-hmm. Library and, and where he taught his last, during his last years. And he was born in Canada but uh, educated in the U.S. And, mm-hmm. and lived and worked most of his life. He was an Icelander that was yeah. in Manitoba, is that right? Where yeah. it kind of has this, where there's this community of yeah. Icelandic people or people who were from Icelandic descent. So, okay, so some Icelandic people moved from... Iceland to Manitoba, yeah. and then they've commuted, created a community. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. This is was the major exodus of Icelanders yeah. to another country in beginning, I mean, the main wave in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. Thousands of people went to Canada. Some went to Brazil. Mm, that's and, interesting. So different. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> yes. This was organized, I mean, yeah. international and kind of uh, foreign aid and... Mm. Uh, Icelanders were in trouble because of uh, eruptions and epidemics. Mm -hmm. Lots of people were escaping. The land wouldn't support the population, although it was small. Mm -hmm. And Stefansson's children were no parents. were both from northern Iceland and and decided to leave and uh, went to Manitoba and raised a family and and etc. But uh, exploring Stefansson's... Diaries. I I was helped by the chief uh, librarian in Dartmouth, okay. who okay. drew my attention to uh, some documents relating to uh, Stefansson's private life, and so I dived into these newly available documents, okay. letters with his fiance in New England, mm-hmm. uh, and the field diaries. And at the time, there was a lot of discussion. This is about. 20 years ago, there was a lot of discussion in, in anthropology about field diaries. I mean, what do they mean? What do they signify? Mm. Are they perhaps a more intimate or, or honest account of what actually happens than what you write and publish. Right. And, yeah. and so my account fell into that slot. And okay. first I published simply one article. Eventually I, I got some funds to hire some of my graduate students for working on the diaries. I mean, these were hundreds of thousands of pages on wow. microfilms, which I bought from the US. Wow, okay. And, and we would read them for a couple of years, and <laughs> a whole group. And it was published as, uh, as the field diaries with a long introduction about Stefansson's private life and introducing the anthropological complications, mm-hmm. etc. Having done that, I. I kind of, a friend said to me, you must write Stefansson's biography. And after some thinking, I was getting tired with the documents yeah. <laughs> and the details. Uh, I said to myself, yeah, Stefansson deserves uh, one more biography. Mm-hmm. There was another one already many years earlier. And, and also an autobiography, partly co-authored with his wife. Okay. His uh, wife that is... Known, not yeah. the okay. yeah. formally <laughs> yeah. married in, in in a Western tradition. Okay. Evelyn Stefansson yeah. Neff. And, and Did she know about <clears throat> his family? Was it in uh, Alaska or in Canada? Alaska. Alaska. Yeah. Did he? Did she know about this family? Yes, she she must have known. I mean, there were letters I I found in the archives in, right. in Canada and Dartmouth showing that Stefansson's friends after he immediately after he died mm-hmm. they were they were exchanging notes on mm-hmm. on his cohabitation with an Inuit woman. Right, yeah. It's called the seamstress yeah. in the jargon. She must have known that. Yeah. 
And also about the Dartmouth letters, which right, okay. no one had digested before I, I got access to them. Right. So I felt I had some rich stuff adding to the previous story of Stefansen, which was all about his fame in right. expanding the West to the Inuit land and mapping the art, which he deserves credit for. Mm-hmm. But but we need to understand uh, the person. Yeah, too, exactly. And I mean, his private life. Yeah, the legend versus you know, yeah. the in, yeah. Because so it, is it became a, a biography in Icelandic, okay. and and it was well received here. So I had it translated and published in Canada and England as mm-hmm. Traveling Passions, it's called. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Have you ever, have you interacted with any of the descendants from um, Alaska or have they ever reached out to you? About? Yes, I I met four of them okay. and I tracked them down. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it took uh, a couple of years. First, I was trying to find uh, Stefansson's son, mm-hmm. Alex. I mean, there were photos of him in the archives, and, right. but um, I discovered he had passed away. Oh, wow. And eventually, I went to Inuvik in the Northwest Territories of Canada, not far from Yukon and, and Alaska. Okay. Managed to meet four of their grandchildren, have extensive interviews with them. And some of these interviews were reproduced in a documentary. And okay. I was in touch with them. I met some of them again on another visit to Canada, which was fun. And, and they've all passed away now. Okay. All of them had very difficult lives. Yeah, that's was... what I gathered from some information online, that there was some of these letters were about needing assistance or like how yeah. much, how hard life had been for them and yes. just trying to reach out to their grandfather yes. to kind of get some help there. Mm-hmm. And also recognition for their grandmother and kind of her con- contribution to helping him with you know, what yeah. he had been exploring yeah. and things like that. Yeah. So, so um, Icelanders overall had no idea about that part of Stefansson's mm. life. He was a public hero here and he was, he was uh, for a time considered the po- a possible candidate for the first presidency after okay. uh, independence. Wow. And declined or, or whatever. He wasn't an, an Icelandic citizen. Anymore. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's a really fascinating thing, right? <laughs> yeah. But you have that in South American democracies. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah, that was new. When the, uh, Icelandic Canadians had some rumors about this, but uh, it was not widely flagged. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of looking into, like, reading this because... Uh-huh. I, I love that part of it when it comes to the individual, you know, legend person versus the actual life of them. Oh, thank you. He's passing me the book now. Oh, thank you very much. I wasn't expecting that, but I, I appreciate that. I don't tell us that. their copy of the biography, but you have it in libraries. Yeah, yeah. It's no problem. And a great grandchild of theirs, Stefansson and Panigabruk, is... Is a woman named Kate Tokhor in, in, in the US. I'm not sure where she is living now, but uh, occasionally she has been in touch. Okay. But thank you. This is yeah. awesome. I need to keep this one. Okay. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so before we started recording, you talked a little about, bit about that you're uh, having a book coming out about the volcano eruption in the Westman Islands of Eldfet. I'm just wondering what makes you motivated to write about certain topics because there's a lot of really fascinating things in the world of course and in iceland there's so many different Mm. stories so is it just like a gut feeling of like you mentioned a little bit about this han jonathan story that you just felt like you had to do it is that normally how you choose what you want to research more or write about yes i tend to follow my gut feelings and it's worked pretty well yeah (laughs) and anyway it's 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 fun i mean um, I've had the liberty as a professor or lecturer in anthropology to work on things that I enjoy. And I've been almost obliged to to shift interest a bit because it's a small department, so Mm -hmm. you have to develop courses on various things, language and theory and the environment and the Arctic. And so it's a learning exercise. And and in the process, I picked up certain themes which I found uh, fascinating. And currently, I've just just finished a book on fate of the great oak. Mm. It's a 
and I guess my interest is partly triggered by, by, and I'm not answering your question now. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I, I haven't forgotten it. No worries. <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm still deeply into the Great Dog case. Uh, this was a flightless bird mm-hmm. that became extinct in in Iceland in 1844. Okay. And there's extensive literature on it. It was hunted in basically killed in Newfoundland by European uh, explorers and, okay. and um, in thousands. Wow. And, but also later on th- there were pockets of uh, small populations in, in, in the British Isles and Iceland and Norway. And as the species became rare, mm-hmm. I mean it was difficult to get eggs and bodies and skins and so collector's item the pressure on the last ones uh, escalated so the price would increase and and there were organized expeditions to the islands where the last populations lived and eventually two birds were killed on an island Mm -hmm. Elte Fire Island uh, uh, (laughs) close to the peninsula where the international airport is and um, what triggered my interest there was um, I've always known about the bird. I mean, since primary school, I guess, right. and it's uh, highly kind of pertinent in in Icelandic culture because of this history and the sense of uh, guilt and loss, yeah. having uh, ruined a species and and something that is coming now with the threat of mass extinction. Mm-hmm. But what convinced me that I had to write a book about the Great Orc was the fact that I, I suddenly became uh, aware of manuscripts in, in Cambridge University Library. Aye. Hundreds of pa- pages called the Gerfowl books, Aye. written by two Brits who came to Iceland in 1858, 14 years after the species was extinct. <laughs> no one knew that it was extinct. And, oh. and Many people assume the population had simply moved elsewhere. Yeah, okay. migrated somewhere. Yeah. yeah, extinction wasn't problematized or theorized. But nevertheless, uh, bird enthusiasts were getting worried that uh, the species had gone. Uh-huh. So the Brits didn't find didn't find any any bird. They wanted to possibly to uh, have a specimen and, okay. uh, in their museums or whatever. They redefined their sort of the purpose of this day. I mean forget the birds mm-hmm. we're not able to go to the islands because of bad weather right. and and apparently no one has caught any birds in recent years so they interviewed the last crew right. or the last crews uh, on the expedition typically from 1844 and uh, asking the uh, crew members 12 or 14 were still alive and asking them repeatedly and, and on farms in the south southwest coast, almost right by the international airport, a place called Hapnir, and asking them about the behavior of the birds and how the last expedition had ex- expeditions had been organized, and, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes uh, venturing the history. I mean, how much they had fished or hunted mm-hmm. years or decades before. And, yeah. I saw that these manuscripts had been referenced in a few articles, and so it was not a new discovery, but other people had summarized the results from a kind of ornithological perspective. I thought to myself, I have to dive into these manuscripts, just like I did with the legal documents in in the court case of Hans Jonathan. Mm -hmm. I bought a copy of them. It's the only copy in the world. Wow. <laughs> from the Cambridge. Uh, and it was uh, very expensive. I bet. But it was worth it. And, and um, for the last year or two, I've been busily training myself to read the, the handwriting and, and mm-hmm. uh, transcribe it and, and, and interpret it and, and write. And, and now I've finished a book, which is nice. more or less based on it. It's coming out in, in October, and hopefully I'll get it translated. Okay. It's coming out in Icelandic? Yeah. Okay. That became a passion, and I'm, I'm just now <laughs> getting rid of it when yeah. it's going to press. <laughs> okay. The 
book about the eruption is slightly different. Uh, there's so many angles to it. And one thing is simply that, uh, I mean, this is a book about my childhood and, mm -hmm. and uh, the islander's understanding of mountains mm -hmm. and, and volcanoes, eruptions, earthquakes, etc. The closeness to the earth. But I, I certainly found it timely to to write this up. And, and of course, it's, it's my age. I wouldn't have done this at the age of 20 or mm. even 50. But uh, now, as I approached uh, 70, I, I felt it was time. And, mm. and I spent uh, a couple of years tracking all kinds of information about the eruption. I mean, uh, attempts to monitor um, earthquakes prior to that mm. and, and why they failed to capture mm. any indication of an eruption. Um, as a result of which the islanders woke up in the middle of the night, right. one or two o'clock in the morning, in 23rd January 1973, with a volcano in the backyard. Yeah, the earth and, opening up and yeah. lava coming out, that's yeah. pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing, uh, it's kind of, I mean, this was in a sense, uh, simply as I was growing older, I felt it uh, important to flesh out this history in somewhat different terms than, mm. I mean, there are lots of books already and articles, but I wanted to use my anthropological expertise plus my childhood experience. Right, yeah. But when the eruption occurred, I was uh, doing my master's degree in Manchester okay. and I, I heard uh, rumors at lunch time on 23rd of January and I dismissed the rumors. And, no way. There is a volcano on the island, but uh, it hadn't erupted for thousands of years. Right. And, and come on. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> but, it's basically just a nice place to maybe go hiking or something, right? You're not really thinking about it as like yes. an active, yeah. Okay. At that time, it was not even sort of known for hiking. It's okay. Practically no tourism. Right, yeah. <laughs> came later. So I tracked down uh, the information on seismograms and and uh, I interviewed the, uh, some of the people who uh, witnessed the events from right from the beginning. And, and uh, I documented uh, hundreds of uh, newspaper accounts and, and explored photographs, etc. Yeah. But a third reason, in a sense, for my kind of sudden interest in, in eruptions, I mean, volcanoes are not people. <laughs> In, in a normal understanding, uh, although uh, some cultures define volcanoes as yeah. persons, mm -hmm. New Zealanders, some I think, and, and some others. A third reason for my int interest was that uh, in uh, social science and anthropology there was a growing interest in, in the planet itself. In, in sort of the material crust and, mm. and uh, and making sense of things, I mean, hardcore stuff. Traditionally, social scientists and other scientists would divide reality in, in two planes. I mean, you had the, the material crust, and, and then you had societies and mm. political organizations and cultures established on the top of it. Right. This is nature-culture dualism, which is, uh, has been uh, uh, rampant in, in Western culture for centuries. Right. And uh, there's a growing push in many sciences, uh, natural sciences and humanities and social science for, for suggesting that uh, it's more complex. It needs to be, after all, humans are made of material stuff. Right. I mean, we have gallstones and, and mm -hmm. uh, stones in our ears and, yeah. and eventually we end up in the crust yep. of the planet, <laughs> etc. <laughs> And so lots of social theorists are trying to make use of this, to um, try to understand how and why the earth and, and material things matter to us are, are really social things mm, as well. Right. Things like uh, a massive earthquake or, or a, a volcanic eruption near human settlements is, is something we obviously need to attend to. Mm -hmm. And uh, that became this book, which is it's already published in, in France mm -hmm. as of January. 
and but it's coming out in the summer and with uh, uh, Pangtum books in, in California under the title of Down to Earth, a memoir. Mm. So, yeah, the whole thing is about getting down to earth. Yeah, definitely. Taking Connection. more seriously. Yeah. I'm also thinking about, um, and maybe this came up when you, in your interviews with people, about being there during this time and having to evacuate and all this, you know, kind of sadness around losing your home, you know, it just also possibly dying right like it's just mm-hmm. uh, no one died but still the possibility of that happening was yeah. very strong there were some many people who wanted to go back after mm-hmm. and that part intrigued me the most because i was just like wait a minute <laughs> right like this yeah. volcanic eruption happened this was frightening you had you know children families everybody disrupted livestock killed because they couldn't transport them mm-hmm. so i'm just wondering about that too you know this aspect of still feeling so connected to a place that you're willing to go back and Granted, it's very possible that after this eruption, nothing would happen for many, many years, maybe thousands of years. Mm-hmm. But still, that's just a, a very traumatic thing to also, you know, kind of be so connected to the land that you still want to go back even though mm-hmm. it happened. So I'm just wondering if you have thoughts around that. Yeah, that's exactly. It's a connection to the land. And the eruption began in late January and it was officially over in early July. Right. Uh, immediately the the discussion uh, arose. I mean, shall we return? Mm-hmm. When and on what terms, right. etc. Slowly, people began to to move back, and some had lost their houses and had no uh, home to return to, right. and others had solid and undamaged, etc. And so, just lots of ash. <laughs> yes, probably you know, with ash. And, yeah. And and it was a massive job of, of clearing the uh, layers of ash on, on over the whole island. How do you like what what is the process of clearing out ash? No, they would uh, use uh, tractors and and trucks to uh, move sort of um, kind of scraping the surface okay. with, with tons of ash and wow. and moving it to. Uh, the outskirt of the town. Okay. So plowing ash. Essentially. Yes, <laughs> literally plowing ash. Yes, it became useful as a building material. Okay. Leveling the old lava. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. because yeah. lava. Well, I would say like in Icelandic history that I've I've heard about lava fields weren't always seen as something like beautiful and, and mm-hmm. interesting. They were kind of seen as a nuisance in yeah. some ways, right? So okay. Every visitor who comes to Iceland practically comes via Keflavik airport and mm-hmm. drives through a fairly recent lava and it's it's very rough. Yeah. So there are usually negative associations with it, although in paintings and art it can acquire uh, sensibilities and, and sense of beauty right. and, and, and niceness somehow. A major barrier was the trauma. Many people were traumatized. Yeah. And only realized it decades later. It was kind of pushed under the under the carpet yeah. for years. PTSD. And, I mean, who who would know, right? Like no yeah. one's ever talking about it at that time. Yes. So, <laughs> so after, on the fortieth, I understand the fortieth anniversary of, of the eruption. Yeah. Lots of people somehow. I mean, there were lots of festivities and and visits back and forth and and reflections on what happened and, mm-hmm. and media discussions and massive visibility kind of of the issue uh, meant that people would uh, sometimes explode and, yeah. and relive the trauma with tears in their eyes yeah. with uh, even mentioning of the event and, and psychologists tell me that it was a quite a job for many people to finally settle this and bring it into the open and right. speak through it. They had suppressed it for years. Yeah. Being cool and strong is yeah. very the old fisherman culture. That feeds a little bit into like the tataratas idea, yes. right? It's just like exactly. don't worry about it, it'll work out. You just like push it down yes. and just keep going. Exactly. Yeah. Things will sort themselves out right. later on. But sometimes the problems bigger problems came the, yeah. when the trauma became a major barrier for personal development right. or, or continuing with, with your life. Were any of your family members living on the island during that time when this happened? Because you were in school, right, yes. in Manchester. My, my family, my parents had moved to Reykjavik. Okay. 
it was at the end of my secondary grammar gram or, or college days mm -hmm. and they had sold their house so so they were okay okay, okay. Uh, yeah um, I had four siblings in, in, in Reykjavik, but I had lots of cousins and, and relatives from both my father's and my mother's lineage right. on the island. I repeatedly visit them, and so I follow yeah. their lives over right. the years and decades. Yeah. So, yes, family members right. were severely affected, yeah. losing houses and scrambling their lives for good, some of them. It's a very dramatic event. Definitely. It kind of brings up you know, because I think for most people, the volcano eruption of Eyjafjallajökull was the one that's like, okay, it disrupted a lot of the world, right? And being able to travel. Yes. And it gave people a bit of a taste of what it's like for Icelandic people to be in a position where it can literally, your whole life is wiped out in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, you're at least your, your current way of living, even though you still have the ability to keep going you yes. know, and live, but now you have to reestablish yourself again and yeah. maybe rebuild if you decide to go back. And I'm just thinking about how much now things are shifting, even in Iceland, because you have different types of people who live here now, and they're not used to this same way of thinking necessarily, right? Um, and over on the Reykjanes Peninsula with, is it uh, Thorbjörn, mm -hmm. that, that people thought might erupt. And there was like yeah. this whole big concern about that. And, yes. you know, there's a Polish community that, that was living there that was kind of like out of the loop a little bit. And it's like, you know, there's all these now different pockets of mm -hmm. cultures in mm -hmm. Iceland that are being exposed to it as well as the world being exposed if the volcano eruption is big enough to, you know, yeah. disrupt them. So it's like it takes on from a little scale in Iceland, right? yes. <laughs> this is a potential global scale. Yes. And I'm just wondering about how that is affecting the world in a way, right, of like, the trauma and how it ripples out from this very small island yeah. in the North Atlantic. Yeah, that's well put. And the Eyjafjallajökull eruption 2010 yes. was yeah. uh, a major disruption, of course, internationally with millions of passengers who had to cancel or divert their schedules. Right. And here, of course, it was a shock as well. I mean, we were scrambling to get gas masks, much like the virus issue yeah, today. right, coronavirus, um, yeah. Just all of a sudden, I mean, we had to be sensitive to uh, new yeah. things. And, um, but both cases, both eruptions, and, and, and the impending threat of Thorbjörn in mm -hmm. southwest Iceland now, and many other eruptions yeah. throughout the world. I mean, kind of forces regularly to face the fact that we have to live with the planet, be mm -hmm. part of it, and, and we can use science and, and cultural tools and to try to predict events and, and try to uh, behave accordingly mm -hmm. and be ready for um, practically anything. Right which is never possible, but to me, and, and, and that was one of the reasons for writing the book, which I hadn't mentioned, is eruptions are some of the events that encourage us to, to think of the planet on new terms. Mm. And now there's a lot of talk about the Anthropocene or the new era of yeah. uh, in geological history, uh, during which humans are increasingly uh, having an impact on the earth itself. I mean, there's plastic, right. uh, there's pollution, yeah. there is freakish weather almost everywhere, mm -hmm. and floods and, and bushfires and, and the rest of it. And yep. In the book on the Westman Islands, I argue that the eruption and the advent of it and the repercussions and the complications in private lives, etc. All of this is a kind of microcosm mm. which is useful to reflect on, on the planet itself during this uh, Anthropocene. And now I'm finalizing uh, a book for a publisher in London, okay. Carlton Books. And the book is uh, written for the public. The tentative title is The, the Human Age. Mm. It has uh, many short chapters and a couple of hundred images and photographs. Yeah. And the point is to explain in common terms without jargon how we got where we are. 
and how the Anthropocene effects can be noticed at every level, everywhere on the planet, yeah. emphasizing the fact that we need to, to organize and, and act accordingly to slow down these crazy processes and of escalating CO, CO2. Yeah. In my work on, on the Westman Isles, I use a concept I developed with an American anthropologist, uh, Heather Swanson. We wrote a paper on, on what we called geosociality. Okay. It's chaos, earth, and, and the social life. I'm arguing that we need uh, geopolitics in a new sense. It's not just the sort of Cold War right. territorial battle of uh, empires or states, West and East. It's um, politics of the planet itself right. in the process. That's one more passion. Yeah. And, and the key passion there, um, I thought I would be done with writing books when I had finished the book on the great dog. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm finished. And as a matter of fact, I retired by the end of the year. Okay. And so now I can simply have fun and, <laughs> and do what I enjoy and prioritize. But almost when I was finalizing the book on, 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 on the great dog, uh, uh, I got uh, an invitation from the publisher in London to, to write this book and and I first thought no that's it I've done my job but uh, it slowly intrigued me partly because uh, I thought if there's anything that I kind of still have to say to the world and to write it is that kind of assembly of thinking about the earth for decades, I've been in, interested in, in uh, environmental issues. I taught a course on environmental anthropology for years, and I've been interested in the, the Arctic and, and melting glaciers and volcanoes, mm -hmm. extinction, and all of this is packaged kind of in the Anthropocene. So I was glad to have the opportunity to finish in style with a <laughs> strong statement. But I also thought that this was something uh, I needed to do for my grandchildren and, and their generation and uh, the Greta Thunberg moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, things are becoming so crazy and, and we need to have every opportunity to alert people to right. the facts and, and to silence the uh, denialists who uh, use every opportunity to the opposite right trying to shut down the movement basically yeah. yeah i mean this is similar but in a different way to what andreas Neid is doing right mm -hmm. this, this shedding light and making it as like you mentioned simple because i think that, that is part of the problem and that's also part of the cloak of don't worry is that yeah. you make it sound really complicated and that you know people get confused and then they kind of give up on it because they think that i don't know what to do all hope is either all hope yeah. is lost or maybe i'm, I'm making too much of it yeah. but then when you really simplify it down and you realize wow no actually a we can do something and b if we don't do something we're screwing over future yeah. generations and our current situation right now yeah so that is you know Andres, definitely needed Andres Andres is our key thinker and writer on, on these issues and yeah. his his two books are manifestos yes. and, and widely read and well done. I had a chance to, to interview him and mm -hmm. that was quite enlightening. I have yet to read sure. On Time and Water. I plan on doing that soon. But it's still it's just there's so much to unpack. Yes. And you're like you're mentioning like just, you know, as a society but also just the the greed. And I think it comes back a lot to that. It's just yeah. this idea of people will sacrifice everything yeah. for this present moment of having a lot of money, right? And they can't take any of this with them. Like yeah. you mentioned, we all, we'll all go back to the earth eventually. You don't take any of that. Yes. And yet you're willing to destroy it yeah. for your a present moment. And one of his key points is that there's so much fuss or noise, as he puts it, mm -hmm. around. I mean, all these statistics about climate change and, and climate history way back, millennia and and uh, people get lost in it and, and some people play with that and mm -hmm. kind of it's useful for the denialists to, to yeah. make people confused right. and sort of drown them in the fuss. As Andres Nair argued, it's important that some people try to flesh out the facts and, and hammer mm -hmm. home the key points and, yeah. 
And I think maybe uh, uh, Anders Nair's book, which I became aware of in September, October, I guess, inspired me deep down. Yeah. Sort of, although the structure of the book was there, mm-hmm. <laughs> it drove me to finalize. Yeah. And that's great because we need more voices from different angles and different professions, right, mm-hmm. to add to the story. Because it isn't yeah. just one voice that can do it perfectly. People are willing to listen if they sometimes hear it from mm-hmm. someone that they maybe feel more relates to them or yeah. says it to them in a way that they can uh, at least let it dissolve, you know, marinate inside of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you're doing that. And it's definitely one, you know, if regardless if it's your last book or not, it's still going to be <laughs> impactful. You know, you've, you've said it before that you've, you know, maybe you were done with it, but you yeah. never know. So I'm curious though about, I mean, you've done lots of different types of work and you've re- you're retired now though. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Formally. Formally. <laughs> when it comes to the work that you were doing, maybe with students or other collaborations, is it usually around things relating to Iceland or do you touch on things not related to Iceland or is it usually coming from something dealing with Iceland and it just kind of happens to also include other cultures and societies? Mm. Anthropology of course is much broader than one's native culture while um, Icelandic anthropology in, in early on focused on home. I mean, it was a new movement, anthropology mm. at home everywhere. And it was a good movement. I mean, it, it wouldn't sort of exoticize everything right. outside. And we were just as exotic as the others kind of argument. Soon, Icelandic anthropologists would venture elsewhere. Right. Africa, Southeast Asia, New Guinea, the Arctic, etc. Most of my students have finished a degree on dissertations on Icelandic issues. But some of, some of my colleagues have supervised uh, a number of students working on especially Africa. Okay. So it's becoming more diverse. Yeah. Are, are there any issues specifically in, in Iceland, at least from an anthropological viewpoint, that most intrigues you, like about the current society or culture? The issues that now would appeal to me, mm-hmm. the environment would be my main interest if I continued academically the problems of the Anthropocene are so overwhelming and also uh, I've become fascinated in birds having documented the history in detail the history of the disappearance of the great oak the mass extinction of species and Mm -hmm. is impending and and in fact I've done some uh, work along these lines on on, uh, human animal relations and I've edited a special collection of of articles in the journal Ethnos with a Norwegian colleague, right. Marianne Elisabeth Lee, in, in Oslo. And there's a lot, wor- lot of work going on on the so-called other than human. I mean, we used to speak right. about humans and animals. Then we would qualify humans and other animals. Yeah. <laughs> now it's uh, uh, us and the other than human, or the more than mm, human. Interesting. And um, it's a lively theoretical yeah. discussion plus kind of ethnographic discussion of how people interact with other species. Right. Multi-species ethnography is one of the catchphrases. And I might do something along these lines, environment and, and species related, and, but also the immigration problems. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we need to try to reverse these, uh, these developments in, in European politics mm-hmm. and global politics in the sense of racism and, and bigotry and, and anthropologists uh, of course have a particular obligation there given our understanding of the species and, right. and, and our problematization of, of differences and color and the rest. Right. Fascinating. We're going to move on to the last question of the episode, which is, what is your favorite Icelandic word or phrase? I have some slight poetic interest, so um, I right. tend to language a lot. Um, Solrodi would be one. Can you say it slowly? Solrodi means literally reddish sun. Mm. Um, an image of dawn or sunset. And Solrodi. Yes. Yeah, that's really beautiful Could though. Be, yeah. Color of the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're beautiful Beautiful sunsets. in normal yeah. circumstances, not just sort of Atomic warfare, right? <laughs> yeah. Or volcano eruption, right? Yeah. Even though it's been said that like 
which is terrible, pollution in the atmosphere mm -hmm. can, you know, cause these light refractions yes. that are really beautiful, yeah. <laughs> these colors, and it's like, oh, that's great, uh, but yeah. terrible at the same time. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I really appreciate you providing some insight, a lot of insight in different topics, and I'm sure a lot of my, the listeners, too, will find this intriguing. So thank you very much for providing your time and... I look forward to sharing this with everyone. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. I, I hope I managed to bring across some of my passions and interests. I believe you did. Thank you. Thank you.